0: Um, okay, I, wanna, I want to, I want to, well, what I want to do is just try to stay on holiday topic, because I realized in, in my, where I'm at in my notes, I am so far away from Christmas, I don't know when we'll arrive at Christmas. So what I'm asking is, all the confusion that I've already sown in the first three weeks, if you can just hold that confusion. Pin it. Pin it. Yeah, just pin it. Yeah. Yes, give it to Jesus. He's coming. Give it all to him. Because now I'm going to jump all the way to Luke and begin to talk about some things that I will come back and talk about out on another day, but I can't get it all, make it all fit. and um, Which... But I I think when I look at where I've brought us so far and where I'm trying to get us, it ultimately is to this place right here in Luke. It's, it when I'm talking about Yahweh and I'm talking about the things that I've have already brought up, it really is this perspective that or at least my heart in this thing is there's sometimes that we take the god that we create through the bible which is not the god of the bible it's the god i create through the bible with my flannel graph at times we can we can fit that god and i don't i don't think any of us do this intentionally i think it's just the way it happens but we fit that god into this religious box, and we make him as two-dimensional as the pages we read. And when we do that, we do a great disservice to him, to ourselves, and to the body of Christ at large, in my opinion, because he's not two-dimensional. And when we speak about him getting out of the box and the different things that we use, it really is that he's not this two-dimensional god that is just how those black letters on a white page are uh, how I'm reading them he's so so much more than that and the the realm that he has created the seen and the unseen is so much larger than what we often bring it down to on the pages and, I, and I've said this before, and I'm going to continue to say it because I don't ever want anybody to, to, to hear me saying something different. I absolutely love the scriptures. I believe the scriptures are the inspired word of God, <clears throat> that He's breathed on them, that He's inspired them, that He's in that. The problem is not the Bible. The problem is me and you. And that every one of us, when we sit down to read the scriptures, we start from a personal and cultural bias or filter, if you want to use that word. And I don't believe that any of us in our entire walk on this earth I just think we're always going to have to deal with the filters, yes, yeah. and I think the sooner I can own my filter, the sooner I can begin to see more, to more. Yeah, right. yeah. and one of the filters, this this is something that I, Linda and I were talking on the way over today, she said, I don't know, it was something about, oh, we were talking about what we're going to do for Christmas Eve, and she goes... Well, do you have it all worked out? And I'm like, it's on the plate with everything else that's in my brain right now. It'll come around. It's on a turntable. It'll come around. I'll play it when it gets there. But I can't play it now because it's over there. And what's here now, I have to play. So I'm on track one. It's track four. I'm sorry, Chris, but I'm getting there.'m I'm, I'm going to get to track four. so in, in, so in my brain right now, there's just so many things that are going on from a whole assortment of stuff. But this is one this is something that began um, came out of a conversation actually yesterday morning with someone. Um, one of the one of the cultural problems that we have in the Western church and especially in the American church. And I, this is one of the reasons why I enjoy traveling to entirely different countries because it, they don't think like we think. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the translation of the Bible that Robert has written collides with the translation of the Bible that Jonas in Haiti has written or Lennox in Kenya has written, or even Daryl in England has written, although we're, we're we're all pretty much still tainted by the same thing, but even his is different. And this is one of the things that I feel that imp- we're going to have to deal with, and we're going to deal with it in the weeks ahead too, but one of the cultural filters that we have, especially in America, that from my perspective makes it difficult to hear what the scriptures are saying at times is that I read the scriptures from a individualistic point of view. It's about me. Jesus came to save me. Jesus came to fill me with the Holy spirit. Jesus came to give me the gift of healing. Jesus came to make me a better person. Jesus came to take me out of my darkness and bring me into light. Jesus came to sozo me. Jesus, and I can put the, the most of my focus ultimately becomes me. Are you saying that there is no focus on the me? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that from my perspective, what I think the Bible is saying to us is I am not the center of the universe. I'm not the center of all that God's doing. I'm not the center of of everything that he's releasing. I am a part of the whole. I'm not the whole. I am a part of the body of Christ I am not the body of Christ. And so if I'm going to start hearing what, what is the gospel message, the gospel message, even though it gives an invitation for me to be born again, it gives an invitation for me to know Christ the Messiah, the door that was spoken of earlier. Once I step in the door... It ceases to be about me only and now starts to be about us. And the fact that if it's about us, there are things, if I'm loving, there are things that I will do or not do because it's at the benefit of the us, even though it may not to be to the benefit of the me. All of us that have managed to stay married for more than two weeks have learned that principle. It's a life principle, it's a good principle. If you haven't fallen upon the rock, the rock will fall upon you. Learn the principle. So when we're, when we're looking at the scriptures and what, what I want to look at this morning, I want us to, to hopefully we can see what's happening in the coming of the Christ. It's involving multiple individuals. But those individuals are being brought together for the purpose that's affecting the whole earth. All right. So where exactly does the Christmas story begin? I thought I had this one locked down, and then I thought about it some more. I'm like, nah, it's not really right. So where does the Christmas story begin? It begins in the garden, but we're not going to be in the garden today, so we're moving beyond. So where's another place that the Christmas story could begin? Great question. Turn to Daniel 9 or look at the screen. I find this really interesting because, you know, from time to time, and I know when I first became a believer, one of the questions was, why did Jesus come when he came? Why did God do it then? Why didn't he do it over here? Why didn't he do it over there? Why didn't he do it earlier? Why didn't he do it later? Why did he do it in Jerusalem? Well, the Bible tells us why, all those things. So Daniel 9, starting with verse 24. Now, this is interesting, uh, the backdrop. Daniel, he's in captivity. He starts reading the prophecies of Jeremiah, and he realizes that the 70 weeks of captivity are soon to end. So he begins to pray and ask God for what's, gonna, what's it going to look like when the 70 weeks of captivity end. So he is specifically praying For the nation of Israel who are in captivity and have been in captivity and were prophetically, that that captivity was prophetically defined for them. And so now Daniel begins to pray and intercede. So the questions Daniel is asking only have to do with the 70 weeks or the 70, uh, yeah, the captivity. I haven't even started yet and I'm already off. So, verse 24. This is the angel Gabriel's response to him. (laughs) Tuck that away. It was Gabriel that said this. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in the holy city to finish the transgressions, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint the most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. So there is the framework of something that's about to happen that's not the 70 weeks that has to do with the captivity. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end shall come with a flood, and to that end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, For half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of the abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decree is ended, is poured out on the desolator. Merry Christmas. (laughs) You could just see Christmas written all over that, right? You guys got that, right? Right, you got it. This is actually one of the most important prophecies, in my opinion, speaking towards the future of the Old Testament. Because it sets in the timeline what is about to happen and what's going to happen after it happens. So, first, Daniel starts praying, and so now the, the angel Gabriel shows up and begins to give him this prophetic word. When we move up to Luke, which we will in a bit, Gabriel is there again. Gabriel seems to be the what I think most terms would call an archangel, and Gabriel is the one that seems to be the one that has the responsibility of being the messenger from heaven to bring about prophetic words that are messianic in nature. So he was the angel that was assigned to declaring the Messiah. So he declares it to Daniel. But then well when we jump ahead in a few minutes to Luke, he's back on the scene again. Which is important because we're talking about timelines. So this Let me try to, I didn't bring out the whiteboard today, but you you guys can do the math. So in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 8, which, did I pull that one up? I don't think I pulled that one up. No, I didn't. You can turn to it if you want. But in Leviticus 25, 8, the Jews, the way they set up their calendar, they're sabbatical years. And so the way it's laid out, The years are divided into weeks of years. And that's important for this prophecy because each week contains 70 years. Or seven years, not 70. Each week contains seven years. So the 70 weeks that are spoken of by Gabriel are 490 years in time. And when we look at... When Daniel received this, and when Jesus comes, it's within that 490 years. So so Daniel was receiving not what was going to happen when the Jews came out of their 70 years of captivity in Babylon. It's interesting, Gabriel doesn't even answer that prayer, doesn't even talk about that prayer. He just says, there's something beyond that. And this is what's beyond that. And so then he starts to unfold there's going to be 490 years. Why is that really important? Who really cares? Because when we start talking about the coming of Jesus, Jerusalem was an anticipation of the coming of Messiah. They knew these prophecies. They were waiting for this. this. This whole thing, it wasn't like somehow God went, I got this secret. I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm just going to spring them on them. Before they even know it, bam, there's a baby and then I'll just go do what I'm going to do. No, God doesn't do that. When you That's the thing that for me that's so rich in the scriptures is that God openly talks about what he's going to do. We just openly ignore it. Yeah. And then we blame him because, well, I wish I had known. Well, if 490 years ago, I had a conversation. The guy even wrote it down. And your leaders and priests have been reading it to the present day. So the problem was not me not communicating. The other thing that, that this it talks about is, uh, which verse was that? Um, 26, where it says the desolations are decreed. You know, that word pops up from time to time. Something is decreed, or I decree this, or declare that. Well, in this particular context, when it's talking about decreed, it means it's determined. So this time frame, this is determined, and it doesn't mean that it's like cut off. Some translations will use the term cut out, like this this time has been cut out. But it's not cut out like it's excluded. It's, it's determined. It's set in place that this is going to happen. This 490-year period, it's not going to take a break in the middle. It's not going to start and then stop and then start again at a later point. It's decreed. It's determined. It's been cut out of the timeline, and it will happen. So there are prophetic words that are spoken that... We, we play a part in. You know, if somebody come, gives me a personal prophecy, as we know and we tell everybody here, if I get a personal prophecy, I have to first decide, is this for me? I mean, I know the person who gave it to me was really charged up about it, but it doesn't really resonate with me. If it does resonate with me, and if the Lord says, I'm going to do this and this and this, then it doesn't give me the ability or the, the freedom or whatever To go sit on my front porch and go, well, if it's of the Lord, it's just going to happen. Well, if you sit in that rocking chair long enough, it ain't going to happen. And we'll bury you and the chair. And we'll talk about the prophetic word that was spoken of you 30 years ago that would have been awesome if you just got off your butt and started to do something. But don't worry, it's your funeral, so we'll make it nice. We won't be offensive. <laughs> so this time, was it's designated, it's appointed, and it's referencing, referencing Jerusalem. It's referencing a particular place and when it's going to happen and that you're going to know when the time is up. So the Jews in Jerusalem at the time, around the time of Jesus' birth, were anticipation of this. There have been people that have come before claiming to be Messiah. There were those that came after Jesus claiming to be Messiah. It was one of those times where the atmosphere was charged with an anticipation. And in that charge of anticipation, you can almost always count on the false to rise up. Because it's just, it's a good opportunity. People are listening. They're kind of in tune. All of a sudden, certain words come into vogue. That other that in other time people wouldn't even notice the word. But now you speak in it's like what was that? Oh wow, why oh that word, yeah. Ooh. You know, and then somebody writes a book about it. <laughs> so let's let's Look at Daniel 24. Now, I took this from Adams Clark, which I really like Adams Clark. He's a commentator, uh, wrote a long time ago, but I just really like his commentary uh, on a lot of things, and so I felt it was just as easy to cut and paste than to work through any changing it up at all. So it says in, we'll go back and read 20, verse 24. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint the holy place. All those things are going to happen at the, with the coming of Messiah. That's what he's doing. Right? So again, Gabriel tells Daniel, look, when this happens, this is what's going to happen. This is why it's happening. All right. So now we move up to with Adam's Clark. So the first is to finish the transgression. Or in the Hebrew, to to finish means to restrain, to restrain the, the transgression. So as the as that is as the gospel is brought forth, what is happening? there is a restraining of the transgression. How how does the transgression get restrained? Because the gospel begins to bring the liberation that has held people in bondage. So all of a sudden, those of us, all of us, that are caught in transgression, that can't get out of transgression, the the gospel brings a restraintment to that. It, It restrains it in one way because it brings me an awareness. Paul said, when I saw coveting, I coveted it all the more. And then he, in verse, uh, Romans 7, where he walks us through, well, what happens? I became aware of a transgression, and now the power of the gospel takes me from the transgression to a place where the transgression is restrained. So Paul takes us through Romans 7, brings us out into Romans 8, where he says, lays out for us, how do you get out of this mess that you're in? This is how you get out of it. This is how it comes forth. So the first thing that it does it brings a restraining to the transgression. The second, to make an end to sins. And in the Hebrew I find this really interesting. It's not talking about an end to sins like somehow I can't sin that once Messiah comes I no longer have the, have the capacity to the sin. What it's talking about in the Hebrew is to make an end to the sin offerings. <laughs> Can I still sin? Absolutely. What's the difference then? Sin no longer requires an offering. It only requires repentance. I'm free from this system that says this sin requires this to be sacrificed, that to be sacrificed, these various things. No, it's bringing an end to the the sin offerings, which Again, if we read through the New Testament, what does it talk about? That my conscience, when I am caught in the the place of sin offering, my conscience is always filled with my own sin. Because I'm in this place, I'm always having to have this offering, and I see myself caught in this place that I can't get out of. But with the coming of Messiah, there's an end to the sin offering because Christ is the one that has offered himself once and for all, and his blood is sufficient to cover all sin. So again, that doesn't mean that I'm now incapable of sin. It means that when I do, I can quickly move through repentance and be restored back into right relationship. I'm not alienated out. I'm no there's no longer this, you know, if you look to the to the sin offering, It was very uh, distinct in how it had to be done. The animal I had to use, how many of the animals, when I had to do it, how the animal had to to die, or was it a grain, you know, whatever. Well, sin offering was never a grain, but whatever, it was very distinct. So if, if the offering I'm to bring is to be a lamb without spot and blemish, and I bring in a lamb with spot and with blemish, my offering was was null and void so nothing was covered the good news of the gospel is in jesus christ there isn't any such system as that anymore we every one of us in this room have come to places where our repentance might not have risen to the level that we or Someone else might have thought it should have risen to. Well, it wasn't about me doing a specific thing. It was now it's shifted from the animal that's going to be sacrificed for my sin. It's now shifted to my heart. So if my heart is broken, if my heart is contrite, that's actually sufficient. That is the offering. That is it. So it's. the gospel has shifted the perspective. The perspective once was, this is what I have to do to get there. The the perspective of the New Testament, of the New Covenant is, I'm already there in Christ and nothing can separate me from that. And so now my heart can respond to him and I can move out of any time I transgress or I commit a sin, I can move out of that. I'm no longer locked into it. And as we've, we say here on regular basis, I think, repentance is the best friend we have. Because I, I can become aware that, whew, that I shouldn't have said that. That was the wrong thing. And as soon as I become aware of it, I can move right back into right relationship through repentance. You feel the anointing, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Is touching my face? I don't want to touch it. I don't want to touch it. The third thing was to make reconciliation. Again, in the Hebrew, it's to make atonement for iniquity. Again, Jesus did that. This is the work of the cross. This is the work of Messiah. He, did the, he made atonement. He's, he's the one that did that. We're the beneficiaries of that. He's the one that did it. The fourth, to bring an everlasting righteousness. Again, in the Hebrew, the righteousness or the righteous one of the ages, which again, is not the focus isn't to bring righteousness like, well, we're all going to just do everything right all the time. That's not what it's referring to. It's referring to as the righteous one. So again, Gabriel is saying to Daniel, these are the things that are going to happen at the end of this 490-year period when When the the fullness of this plan comes, when the Messiah comes, this is what he's going to do. He's going to be the righteous one. He's the one now that we get to look to. I no longer have to look through the altar of sacrifice to figure out what righteousness looks like. I just look at Jesus. So the New Testament says, having our eyes fixed on him. He becomes the author and the finisher of our faith. Having Looking at him, we are changed. So now he's the righteous one. He's the one that I get to look at. He's the one that becomes the example that I move towards. And I can move towards it in confidence because I realize that the work of the Holy Spirit, again, I no longer go to temple, which is over there, And do the things I have to do because I can't even go in the temple unless I've done certain things. Now, New Covenant, I've become the temple. And so now the righteous one lives in me and is conforming me to his image. I'm being transformed. Fifth, to seal up, which in the Hebrew means to finish or to complete, the vision, the prophecy, that is to put an end to the necessity of any further revelations and the fulfilling of the prophecies which related to, to his person, sacrifice and glory that should follow. So, again, what's happening? When Messiah comes, the end of messianic prophecy has arrived. Right. There's no need to have any more messianic prophecy. The, the Messiah is here. He can now speak for himself. And what we could only see dimly through the prophetic word, we now see face to face in the one that's standing in front of us. So it, it will seal up. And to the anointed most holy, which again in the Hebrew is the holy of holies, uh, to anoint, which from the Hebrew word, and I won't pronounce it right, but. Uh, Mashiach is the word for Messiah, the anointed one. And it just signifies in general, then consecrated to appoint to some special office. Here it means the consecration or appointment of the Holy One of Israel to be the prophet, the priest, and the king of mankind. So Jesus is now here as prophet, priest, and king. He fulfills all those roles. So when we go back again to, to just read 24 one more time. The 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint the most holy place. So what happens at the end of 490 years, from the time that Daniel receives this word to the time that it all starts to happen? God's plan is... When Messiah comes, I am stepping into history in a new way, and I'm changing history from this point on. And things that mankind has been caught in and trapped in, I'm liberating them, and they can never, that'll never have the power that it once had over mankind. So, now let's turn over to Luke chapter 1. I just think that Daniel is really important if we're going to talk about the the coming of the Messiah. I mean, it's fascinating to me. From my perspective, I think Daniel is one of the most important prophecies of the Old Testament. It's amazing to me. 490 years. Gabriel shows up to Daniel. And let me point out in each of these cases, when it's talking about Gabriel showing up, when it's talking about other angels that show up, announcements that are being made, these are not mental thoughts that somebody's having and goes, I think that was Gabriel. No. They were there in the physical. And what I'm going to build on later, and I'm going to have to ask you just to accept it for now, I guess, that for the Hebrews prior to the Babylonian captivity, and even for the Jews after the Babylonian captivity, there was always an anticipation and an acknowledgement that the unseen realm came into the seen realm. It wasn't unusual for them. They didn't find that unusual. As a matter of fact, when a, and we'll look at this as a backdrop maybe next week, but when when a Hebrew woman was pregnant, it was common expectation for angelic visitation to come and give the name of the child. That That's not, that wasn't just a Jesus thing. There was an expectation that dead relatives would be would reappear and talk about the child, what the, what the purpose and the plan for the child was. That wasn't a foreign thing to them. It wasn't outside of their scope of understanding. That's, we, we, we've kind of westernized this story and cleaned it up. It's actually pretty messy. Because <laughs> it's the world they lived in. It's how they thought. So for them, angelic encounters... We're, we're just not unusual. You know, we're going to see this when we get back to Genesis. But we're the ones that get all flipped out if an angel shows up. Because it's amazing, the vast majority of us, I'm, I know not in this room, but outside of this building. <laughs> if an angel shows up, first, we're totally flipped out about that because we don't even get it. So that scares us, and then we immediately go from that to deception, which is amazing to me, that our first response to angelic visitation, I must be deceived. <laughs> well, what did, what did the angel say? He said, go lay hands upon Sue and pray this prayer and she will be healed. And that's deception? Deception. Well, yeah, but there was this being. And if a being shows up, that's got to be deception. Because, you know, he'll come as an angel of light. (laughs) Well, if he can come as an angel of light, doesn't that indicate there are angels of light? (laughs) And maybe would the angels of light be more prominent than the angels pretending to be light? And what's up with you that you're so easily swayed? Why can't you tell the difference? (laughs) The Hebrews, the whole idea of deception didn't even enter into their thinking. If a being from the unseen stepped into the scene and started talking to you, it's not that it wouldn't shake you up a little bit. But they didn't immediately go, Deception! 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 <laughs> yeah. They went, oh, And the angel, Don't be afraid. Okay. I'm all ears. So, as we read through the Christmas story, as told by Snoopy and Charlie Brown, which is our modern-day flannel graph, there were other things going on. Luke 1, verse 5, and in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. and a disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zachariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple, and when he came out he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and they kept making signs to that and he kept making signs to them, and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home, and after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he, looked upon, when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So, as this unfolds, there has not been an angelic visitation in 400 years. The voice of Yahweh has not been heard in Israel for 400 years. Now, if you're a people that are used to and accustomed to the unseen stepping into the scene, for that to leave for 400 years is a big deal. I mean, we're not even a country of 400 years. And these people have been in silence for 400 years. And as we started this whole thing on The Voice so long ago, the point... From beginning to end, was that God is the God that speaks. He's not the idol. He's not the God without a voice. He is the God that speaks, and He's He's establishing that throughout the Old Testament. And here we come to this period of time in the history of this people where four hundred years passes, and there's no voice. There's no voice. So he goes in to do his priestly service and when he walks in it says that he sees a man standing in the holy of holies in the place Now he doesn't know that it's Gabriel yet we don't he, Gabriel identifies himself later but Zechariah knows this is a man but he also knows it's a spirit man not just a man that snuck in under the under the the door somewhere. So he's aware that this is a a visitation. And then Gabriel begins to tell him what's about to happen and that you're going to conceive, you're going to bring forth, um, or Elizabeth is going to conceive, you're going to bring forth this child and you're going to name him John, which goes back to Hebrew understanding. It's not unusual for an angel to show up and tell you what to name your child. So, again, what's happening? The things that have happened, the things that they would have been accustomed to have happen. Except the problem is, and I'm not going to go in this direction today just for time, but it's fascinating to me that now you have Zechariah having the same conversation that Abraham had many years earlier. I'm a little old for all this. And the angel's say, like, don't worry about it. She's going to conceive. All right, just saying, I'm a little old for all this. Don't worry. We've got it. So a couple of things I want us to look at, and then just, let me wrap land this plane. So with the coming of Gabriel, it was, and with what's happening, what we start to see happen in this Christmas story, if we want to use the term Christmas story, but at least in this in this coming of Messiah. So where did the angel go? The angel went to a priest who is appointed to the office of functioning as a priest, which would have been the role would have been the proper role to have come to. He wouldn't have come to anybody else. He would have come to the priest because the priests are appointed to fulfill the duties before the people until the coming of Messiah. So where does does the word come? It comes to the priest. Jesus is the eternal priest, and that's Psalms 110.4. The place that the angel appeared is Jerusalem out of which the word of the Lord should go forth. Not in Hebron, in Judea, which is where Zacharias lived, but he came, the the angel came when he was in Jerusalem, in the temple doing the the work of the priest. Again, the place where, where he was when the angel appeared, he was in the temple. Which is the place where God was to be sought? It was the place of His residence. It was the, the type of the human. Uh, it was a type of the human nature of Jesus. So, it happened in the temple. It didn't happen on the way to the temple, but He was in the temple. It was important that it happened there. The time in which it was done is the solemn hour of public prayer. God has always promised to be present with those who call upon him when the people and the priests go hand in hand, heart with heart, to the house of the Lord. The angel of his presence shall surely accompany them, and God shall appear before them. That was, that was, that's a Jewish saying. That's what they expected. When we go heart to heart to the temple, that's where God is, and he will meet us there. There was always this expectation, God will meet us there. So this was the hour of prayer. He wasn't in preparing, Zachariah wasn't preparing for the hour of prayer, he hadn't finished the hour of prayer, he wasn't doing something else that were part of his priestly duties. He was before the altar interceding for the nation. So he was was at that point the earthly representative of the intercession that Jesus the Messiah continually offers. So he met him there. <clears throat> and again, that was an expectation of the Jews. And, he, and to what I just said, when, when the angel showed up, he was burning incense. And, that, when, and when, the, when the priest is burning incense, that is considered the most sacred time or function of the time of prayer. It, it's their most mystical point. It's the most sacred point when they're burning the incense. That's just part of just Jewish culture. So that's where Zechariah was. And fi- finally, um, you know, he comes out because he questions the angel, which I, I think I've said this before, but it kind of strikes me as maybe I'm playing with words a little bit. So Gabriel shows up. He has this discussion with Zechariah. And tells him, look, this is is what's going to happen. This is what you're going to do. Your wife's going to conceive. You're going to need the child John. He's he's going to be the, the one that comes in the power of Elijah. He's going to restore the hearts of the fathers back to the sons, the children back to the fathers. Gabriel lays all this out. Zachariah knows he's from the unseen realm. And when it's all done, Zach goes... I don't know, man, how's this like, going to happen? And I just think, like we read through that word, it's it just, you know, and Gabriel goes, well, I mean, I'm the angel that stands before God. I mean, I think like when Zach asked that question, I think Gabriel was like, dude, I'm the one that stands before God, and I'm standing before you now. What? in case you missed the whole thing you're not going to talk until your son is born got it? Y E S so now for Nine plus months because he he had to finish his he didn't run right home. Uh, He had to finish up his duties at work. But for that period of time, the sign and the wonder for over Zachariah or Zacharias was that he can't speak. It was a sign and a wonder. I mean, and all of the all of the town, all of Jerusalem knew he was the priest that was on duty when the visitation came. He's the one that after 400 years, this man right here, this Zacharias, he's the one that was in there burning incense before the Lord at the time of prayer when the visitation came again. The voice of Yahweh is back in Israel. And he can't speak. It's a sign and a wonder to remind them over and over and over again when they see him. But on a certain day, his voice came back, which was a sign and a wonder again. So, um, I I don't know. So what's the point of all this? There you go. That works. So what is the point of this? I, I, I want us to 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 if we can to get this to to see beyond the two dimensions of the page and to see the full story that was unfolding. That God when he comes in his majesty the thing when we when we are up here and like today is like today where his presence is here we we most of the time stand in the scene realm feeling the unseen realm and I don't think there's anything wrong with that I think that's the way it happens but I also think the invitation (coughs) to see the unseen and to interact with the unseen is far more open than we've allowed it from the pages as we read them he's not a two-dimensional God. He's an omnidimensional God who has this amazing ability to meet every one of us where we are, to speak something that will shift our heart when everybody else in the room goes, you know, all I heard was a noise. But what he spoke to you shifted your whole heart. And when you tell other people, man, it's amazing. Jesus just said this to me. Well, oh, that's nice. See. Well, it was more than nice. I'm still messed up from it. You know? Because he, he, he finds us individually. He, he, he is developing us individually but let's move beyond our Western culture and realize that what he does with me individually, he's doing for us corporately. Yes. Yes. And what he's doing for you individually, he's doing for us culturally or um, community-wise. We're, yeah. We are intertwined. We, we are the body of Christ, made up of individual members, but we are the body of Christ. Yeah. And sometimes in our, in our culture, we become so individually focused that everything is about me. You know, but it really isn't all about me. It's about us. Yes. Yes. And I think some of the greatest things that we've seen happen in history, just in human history, has always been for the people that stepped out of the me and went after the us. I mean, we, we hold up now as, as heroes and models and successful people, those people who went beyond themselves and gave their whole life for something that ultimately became much bigger than themselves. Did it require them to do something individually? Yeah. I do know. All I want for Christmas is a new microphone. A new microphone. A new microphone. And that's all the singing you're getting. (laughs) To which the church said, Thank you, Jesus. Yes. (laughs) Everybody okay? I don't don't know. I'm trying to be inspirational right now, but I'm I'm short on inspiration because my brain is full of other stuff. Thank you for putting up with me. So, let's stand, please. If anybody's free tonight at five thirty at the Williamsville Church, which is across from the store, they're having their annual Christmas uh, evening program. It's five thirty to six thirty. Um, I'm the, Yeah, I'm going to be sharing this message <laughs> no. now i won't i am going to be sharing parts of it but not what you guys can um but yeah 5 30 but if you're going to come there's there's limited seating so i would advise being there around five o'clock if you want to find a place to sit but it's quaint it's all candle lit and fresh evergreens and wood stove will be going and it's just a really neat really neat christmas evening father i thank you for this company of believers I thank you for what you're doing in us and through us. I thank you, God, for just coming and being the Lord Jesus as we celebrate you in this season of your birth. All that surrounded your birth, the miraculousness, the signs, the wonders, the angelic visitations, all that took place. so that we might have life and have it abundantly, that humanity might actually be able to say, Emmanuel, Emmanuel. Thank you, Lord. Amen.